Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you can hear me. Um, whether you'll be glad by the time I finish is another matter. But I'm going to, I'm going to drivel on on the subject of uh, sorry, okay, <laughs> uh, on the subject of Luke's gospel. Uh, I just want to say a word about that uh, before we do. Which is, uh, if you've been with us since before Christmas, you'll be aware that we've been engaged in this apparently endless task of studying the gospel according to Luke. And I think it's just timely to say that normally our sermon series run for um, 10 weeks or less, but we've just hit a really rich vein of form in Luke, and we just felt we wanted to continue with it. It was something that actually Rachel uh, Cronin said after we came out of lockdown. We, we just want to hang out with Jesus. And this is very vineyard, because John Wimber always used to say, um, read the whole Bible, live in the Gospels. So... That's kind of what we're doing. Our reading today is Luke 6, 1 to 11, and perhaps you'd like to turn there straight away. Over the past three talks, we've covered Jesus cleansing a leper, healing a paralyzed man, and calling a tax collector to follow him, and then having a great feast at that tax collector's house with all the unsavory friends that he had, much to the dismay and distaste of the Pharisees. And this whole section, in fact, from Luke 5.12 onwards, encapsulates in a series of confrontational events a growing antipathy between the Pharisees and Jesus. It's quite shocking, really, how early in this story the falling out begins. The first three chapters of the Gospel cover Jesus' birth and early life and John the Baptist. Chapters 4 and 5 detail the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, his calling of the first disciples, really small beginnings. But even at this early stage, as we enter chapter 6, the seeds of dissent have already been sown. And the two stories we're going to read today just about put the tin lid on it. Now, one of the great spiritual principles that you'll be aware of if you've been around KV for for a long time is that this is not that. And this chunk from chapter uh, 5, verse 12 to 6, verse 11, draw two clear distinctions between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the Pharisees, and between what the Pharisees think of Jesus and who he really is. He and they have already passed a fork in the road, and their roots are going to diverge further and further from this point on. Jesus has chosen the path that's going to take him to the cross. The Pharisees have taken the path that is going to lead them to putting him on the cross. If you want a title for this talk, it's simply this, Meanness or Mercy... A Tale of Two Sabbaths. Let's read together Luke 6, 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. 
And Jesus said to them, is it, I, I, sorry, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. These two stories probably speak more or less for themselves insofar as what's happening between the Pharisees and Jesus. But if we really want to understand the sheer speed with which this issue came to a head, we need to rewind to the very last verse of chapter 4, before the battle lines were drawn. Now we find a vital piece of context. It says, And Jesus was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. We're not told that the healings and confrontations, such as those we read about in chapter 5, actually took place in the synagogues, but some of them probably did. Verse 7 implies the Pharisees expected Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. I think it's easy for us to form the impression that uh, Jesus mainly had open-air meetings or meetings in people's houses, but certainly at this stage in his career, that is not the case. He was preaching in the synagogues. Now, the synagogues were the home turf of the Pharisees. And they were either going to accept Jesus or they were going to resent him bitterly. The Pharisees were the dominant religious force in Palestine at the time, deliberately setting themselves from the toffee-nosed um, priestly class of the Sadducees. They had their own set of rules for interpreting the scripture. They prided themselves on their theology and on their strict adherence to the Jewish law as they interpreted it. And they hung out principally in the synagogues, not in the uh, Jerusalem temple. The Sabbath day, held on the Saturday of every single week, was a day when Jews did no work at all, or indeed walk more than three-quarters of a mile, and that only for essential purposes. It was a weekly reminder of Israel's release from slavery in Egypt. It was intended both as a day to celebrate that freedom before God, and also to institute a healthy day of rest, in every busy working week. The passage we just read is indeed a tale of two Sabbaths, but I want to suggest that it's only two out of a string of Sabbaths. There are many that we weren't told about. In verses 1 to 5, we find Jesus and the disciples passing through a field of grain on a Sabbath day. And you can bet that they were either on their way to a synagogue or on their way from a synagogue. That explains a, what a bunch of Pharisees were doing in a grain field on the Sabbath, and B, why an observant Jew, be that Pharisee or disciple, would be walking about on the Sabbath day. So this encounter is telling in terms of their respective attitudes to the worship they've just done or just going to do. And it takes the form of a challenge and a counter-challenge. Verses 6 to 11 concern the events of a different Sabbath and the conflict between legalism and love, the letter and the spirit of the law. Once again, it illustrates a marked difference in attitude regarding the whole purpose of why believers gather together. Let's look first at the challenge and counter-challenge. This is verses 1 to 5. The Jewish law entitled passers-by to pick the heads of somebody else's standing corn as they walked by. This law was principally to provide for the needy, very much in the same way as we give to storehouse. 
But like giving to storehouse, he'd also served as a reminder to the well-off, the landowner, of his own good fortune and the need to be like God, open-hearted and open-handed in his dealings with the poor. This wasn't communism. You couldn't just turn up with a combine harvester and help yourself. But a needy person could quickly and easily, quite legally, pick enough grain to make a much-needed loaf of bread. Overall, this law must have had a very strong unifying effect on Jewish society, as the rich man's season of plenty was always, and as of right, shared by the poor. According to some commentators, the Pharisees weren't concerned about the disciples picking and eating the ears of corn as they went along. That was all well and good. But rubbing the husks off in their hands, mm, that was work. Uh, das ist verboten. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, that was bad. Well, this, this nitpicking attitude, it seems to me, is poles apart from the intention of either the law of Sabbath or the law of gleaning or grain picking. Each one was intended to be generous and joyful in nature. But the Pharisees had made of it something unyielding, mean-spirited, punitive. Elsewhere, Jesus makes the point that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But these Pharisees haven't got that memo. This seemingly trivial incident is also mentioned in Mark and Matthew, so it's clearly more important than it looks. In Luke's account, we see in verse 2, the question isn't even addressed to Jesus, yet it is he who answers. Like any good leader, he steps in the way to get his crew out of trouble. And what he says, verses 3 and 4, is both shocking and unanswerable. Calling on the record of the great folk hero, the man after God's heart, the psalmist and great king from the golden age of Israel, Jesus recalls what David did one time when he and his men were hungry. He committed a massive infraction of the Jewish law in taking the holy showbread from the temple to feed his troops. For recovering Roman Catholics like myself, this is the equivalent of a homeless person uh, going to the front of the church and stealing the consecrated communion bread off the altar um, to, just as a bite to eat. And to the religious in me, that remains a shocking idea. But does our God, loving as he is, really care more about what we call blasphemy than a hungry person being fed? Some Christians, perhaps even some here, need a radical think on matters like this. I know I always tend to assume that in any confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus, I'd be on the right side. But a closer examination of my heart shows an ugly tendency sometimes towards the Pharisee. One of the many pleasant features of the youth group that I was part of back in the Stone Age was a habit of awarding what we called Pharisee points to anyone who is unwise enough to brag on their own spirituality or their great understanding of scripture. <laughs> oh, 10 Pharisee points on top of the class. <laughs> I, yeah, I really miss that. <laughs> and you can award me some Pharisee points during this talk if you feel I deserve them. <laughs> uh, the other thing I think we should notice about verses three to five is the way that Jesus selects David as his example and then claims lordship for himself over the Sabbath. 
When David ate that holy bread, he was on the run for his life. He was God's anointed king of Israel, yet he found himself a destitute fugitive, unrecognized by all but a very few. Now, in the culture of Jesus' time, it would take a breathtaking nerve to draw a parallel between oneself and one's own hungry followers and David and his. But the heavy hint was there for any who chose to see it. They were looking at the unrecognized king-to-be of Israel. And when his followers were hungry, he, like David, would do what it took to feed them. Then, just to cap it all off, there's this reference to the Son of Man. It's an enigmatic title, but Jesus often refers to himself by it. It allows the hearer to assume that he's making a broad reference to the Messiah, not necessarily to himself. But in this context, and in many others, he's quite clearly talking about himself. It just doesn't make sense otherwise. Why bring the Son of Man into it when we're talking about a very particular current breach of Sabbath law? Some scholars, quite rightly but totally irrelevantly, point, point, point out, there. yeah, they love this sort of stuff, um, that in Jewish thought, Ben Adam, a son of man, simply means a human being. But in the mouth of Jesus, this everyday term is transformed by the word the, with a capital T. The son of man refers unambiguously to the Messiah, the coming king mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, who comes on the clouds of heaven to have dominion over all peoples forever. This figure is one that Daniel sees in the very presence of God, but who confusingly seems to be a human being. In home group this week, we were trying to get our heads around what it means for a physical human to exist in a purely spiritual space. We failed. Not for nothing was Daniel reticent to say it actually is a man. How could it possibly be? Instead, he says words to the effect, I know this makes no sense, but what I saw seemed to be a human being. Well, the Pharisees are, it seems, completely gobsmacked, and well, they might be. Whatever they thought about the Son of Man, they certainly didn't expect him to appear among them like David, the starving fugitive. Maybe David, the glorious king, yes, but not that. It's a funny kind of dominion. It's a funny kind of king. But then, as anyone knew who had heard Jesus preach, the kingdom of God is a funny old kingdom. The Pharisees meant to challenge Jesus, but it is they who went away profoundly challenged. And that's never a bad place to start. Part two, legalism and love, the letter and the spirit of the law. This is verses 6 to 11. This second confrontation over Sabbath-keeping happens in full public view, whereas the first probably happened on a narrow path through a grain field, witnessed only by the Pharisees themselves and any disciples close enough to hear the encounter. Perhaps that's why this time Jesus keeps his response down to a soundbite, and his argument is simple enough for anyone to understand. We read in verse 6 that Jesus was teaching at the time. Wouldn't it have been great to be there? But Luke doesn't even bother telling us what he was teaching because a more important lesson was about to be taught. As in the first confrontation, there's a clash here between mean-spiritedness and mercy. 
In Kingdom Vineyard, we often say we'd rather win a friend than an argument. And I've personally come to the conclusion that I'd rather be merciful than right. The scribes and the Pharisees, they took a different view. I can't remember the name, to my shame, I can't remember the name of the writer who first spoke of remnantitis as a disease in the evangelical church, but it's a striking idea. I've been in churches where they regarded themselves as the few remaining good guys, the last of the true believers, and everyone else was suspect at best and enemy at worst. I suspect these Pharisees, too, were suffering badly from a severe case of remnantitis. They would have understood immediately when Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. But they might have gone ballistic at the idea, also found on the lips of our Lord, that he who is not against us is for us. Verse 7 speaks all too clearly of this mean spirit. Of all the reasons to watch out for Jesus healing this man, surely looking for a way to accuse Jesus must be the most perverse. It would actually be funny if it wasn't so shocking. In pub church this week, we were discussing possible collective nouns for Satan's. And I settled on one to which I'm indebted to uh, my learned friend, Jesse Dooley. A cesspit of Satan's. <laughs> now, for those of us who think, as we probably should, of Satan as a single being, it's worth remembering that the word simply means accuser or legal adversary, as it were. See Revelation 12, 10, which refers to the accuser of the brethren, specifically talking about the devil. The fact is there are plenty of accusers out there. There are those who accuse this church of being too liberal and others who accuse us of being not liberal enough. Some, like these Pharisees, have actually come to church for evidence, seeking reasons to accuse us. I was once lambasted for not mentioning the cross in a talk on Genesis 4. I don't know if you're familiar with Genesis 4, but uh, I, I mean, it, may, it, might, it might take a younger man than me to, to wrestle that into the shape of a cross, but I certainly can't. But it takes all sorts. The fact is that the church in general has never wanted for accusers. Let's just make sure we're not among them. It's not entirely clear, verse 8, whether Jesus needed a word of knowledge in order to discern what the Pharisees were thinking. Because sometimes it's pretty obvious when someone's joined the accuser's side. But Jesus knew to interpret biblical rules with mercy, not meanness. Hence his question, verse 9, which cuts to the very root of how we think of these rules and the God who made them for us. Is he an arbitrary, sadistic schoolmaster like some I've known in my past, looking for ways to catch us out? Or is he a loving father who's given us a sort of highway code to keep us and other road users safe? If the sight of this man standing in front of the congregation with his withered hand exposed for all to see wasn't enough to soften the hearts of the Pharisees, if they didn't even respond to simple, sound reason, then surely the sight of God's healing power released from heaven, verse 10, to make the man whole again ought to have done the trick. Why would God honour the ministry of a wrongdoer? But no, even that wasn't enough to persuade them. The implication of Jesus looking around at them all, 
before asking the man to hold out his hand, is they were silent in the face of his question. Is it right on the Sabbath to do good or harm? The answer is so obvious, yet nobody gave it, at least not in words. They answered it clearly enough with their actions, as we see in verse 11. Wittingly or not, they chose to do harm on the Sabbath, not good. And since they'd come into this whole encounter with a mean spirit, I suppose the outcome was inevitable. The hard heart is impermeable to reason, or even striking demonstrations of the truth. Interestingly, from a legal point of view, Jesus did no discernible work at all in this healing. No prayer, no touch, not even a word of command, just an invitation to stretch out his hand, and God did what God does. Jesus had no active involvement whatsoever. Still, the kangaroo court finds him guilty of Sabbath breach and begins plotting his downfall, actively doing harm on the Sabbath. In both of these case studies, the Pharisees' mistake was an over-reliance on their understanding of God's word, applying it as a rule book, not a way to the Father's heart. This mindset was always going to set them at odds with God's word made flesh in the person of Jesus. Yet it would be a mistake to think that every Pharisee fell into that way of thinking. Nicodemus in John 3, Simon in Luke 7, Gamaliel in Acts 5, they're all numbered among friends of Jesus and all Pharisees. It may be that even some of those uh, who in this passage get so angry with Jesus later probably after consulting their wives, came to their senses. We live in a judgmental age, a hair-triggered, cancelling, no-platforming, othering, closed-minded, tribal era. Everyone demands to be understood while shouting down or shooting down those they disagree with. A slip of the tongue or even a well-argued thesis and get you death threats or the sack. But as we read in Philippians 2, we are to avoid grumblings and disputes, instead displaying our family likeness to our Father in heaven among a twisted generation to shine as lights in a dark world. Whenever we take sides on a contentious issue, see Galatians 5 on the works of the flesh, we are in danger of what Jesus calls the yeast of the Pharisees. That is, getting all puffed up with our own self-righteousness. As St. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If we want to emulate Jesus, and we do, in conflicts of ideas like those we're thinking about today, then we will choose love over legalism. Mercy over meanness. The generous, gracious spirit of the law over the dread, dark, and deathly letter of the law. If I was American, I might say, can I get an amen? amen. There we go. Well done, everybody. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we are privileged to 
be in your presence. As we read these words about uh, a time when you made your presence real in the synagogue. And we pray that you'll come and do the same here right now. As you healed the man with the withered hand, would you also come and heal here today? Uh, Those who have an injury to the left knee and calf, those who have uh, pain in the elbow, um, those who have a stiffness in the neck that they can't shake off and something wrong with the ears. I believe the Lord's going to heal you today. But come, Lord Jesus, and do whatever you want to do. Most of all, we pray that you'll come and uh, soften our hard hearts. Soften our hard hearts towards the poor. Soften our hard hearts towards those who disagree with us. Soften our hard hearts, most of all, Lord, towards you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.